Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football recruiting and more for InsideIndySports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indy Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxie, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. And Dead Soxie has another deal for our podcast listeners. Dead Soxie welcomes you to the pre-Cyber 2022 sale. Buy more and save more. The more you spend, the more you save. So stock up on gifts, stocking stuffers, and don't forget a little something for yourself. Get 25% off any order using code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y, at deadsoxy.com. But it doesn't stop there. If you spend $50 or more on that order, you get free shipping. If you spend $120 or more, you get 30% off. And if you stack so many socks that you spend $240 or more, you get 40% off. That's a lot of socks and a lot of savings. As I've told you before, Dead Soxy offers a premium product made from bamboo that gives you that luxury feel on your feet. Their patented technology has a no-slip guarantee that prevents the socks from rolling down your leg. And those socks have truly become a part of my weekly game day routine. And the navy and gold product line has been a real hit with Inside Indie Sports podcast listeners. So stock your sock drawers and have a wonderful holiday season. As always, stay Soxy. Notre Dame dominated for the most part of the first half on Saturday. Then the midshipmen dominated the Irish for much of the second half in a season filled with weird games. Notre Dame managed to produce another one worthy of the top shelf this past weekend. But at least for the Irish, this one came in a victory. Uh, Now the attention this week shifts to Boston College for the final home game of the season. That means several Notre Dame players will be playing their last game in Notre Dame Stadium on Saturday. We wanted to get a sense for what awaits those players as NFL prospects. So we reached out to Mike Renner, lead draft analyst for Pro Football Focus and a Notre Dame alum, to download some knowledge. Mike, thanks for joining us. For sure. Thanks for having me on. Always an honor. Mike, before before we start getting into your evaluations of Notre Dame's players, can you can you share with our listeners how you sort of got into your role as a draft analyst for Pro Football Focus? What what led you to that path from Notre Dame? Yeah, so I was actually an accounting major at Notre Dame. I was accounting and computer applications um, and then knew I didn't want to do accounting. And, and PFF back then, that was a decade ago. I, I came out, I was class of 2012 Notre Dame. So a decade ago, PFF, like we were lucky to get mentions in newspapers and mentions in articles. Like People didn't know much about it. I, I was one of the first 10 employees there. They just needed people to help do data collection for them. Uh, so I was thinking, I'm like, I could either, either go get my uh, MBA, which was what I was planning on doing, or I could take this part-time job at this fledgling company and see if it turns into anything. Uh, A decade later, uh, here I am. So it's been a fun ride, and uh, I've been doing drafts pretty much only for the last uh, five years now and seen uh, a a fair number of Notre Dame prospects come through. Some misses on my part from Notre Dame prospects, but uh, obviously know them all fairly, fairly well. Well, Mike, uh, the where I wanted to kind of start with is more more big picture with not only the senior class but maybe some of the draft eligible juniors. I think going into this year, I thought this draft class would be bigger, and maybe maybe your evaluations will take us there. It just seems like there's some pretty obvious guys, and then you get to gray area pretty quickly overall how do you see the roster 
Yeah, I think they'll have a number of guys drafted. Uh, the thing is, are, are they going to be drafted highly? Do they have blue chip guys? Like, is, is there a Kyle Hamilton on this team right now? I don't think so. I, I think they could have one first rounder in Isaiah Foskey. It's like your only guy that could get to that point, but he has not. I don't think he's had the year he wanted coming back. You know, he has definitely not, I'd say, raised his stock. His stock's probably at best the same as it was prior to this season in the NFL's eyes with this play this year. So I think we'll have a number of guys drafted. It just may be a lot of guys on day three, I'd say. And when you were saying one first rounder, you mean among the seniors, not including Michael Mayer? Yes. No, yeah, among the seniors, among that group that you're talking about. So speaking of Michael Mayer, what how high could he go if he chooses to to go in the NFL draft? Is is he that good? I know tight ends don't not a lot of tight ends go in the first round. Is he a good enough tight end to to push for a high draft pick? I think he is. I, I don't it's tough though. Tight end's a tough position because some teams just won't take a guy that high, and some teams will. You know, like Cal Pitts goes number four overall. TJ Hawkinson goes number eight overall. Two very different types of tight ends where your last two top 10 picks at tight ends. But the vast majority of tight ends that do go in the first round run somewhere in the neighborhood of four, six or below in the 40. Like Michael Mayer, I think we can all agree is not going to. In his speed, athleticism, that's not his game. But everything else about the position, he's about as good as it gets. So if if you just take the speed out of the equation, you have a ready-made NFL player my comp for him is Jason Witten, and it's like, it's too good of a comp. <laughs> that, that is who he's going to be at the NFL level. He's going to be that, the chain mover, the inline blocker, the guy that you could just rely upon to do that game after game, snap after snap. And it, then it comes to putting a valuation on that. Some teams will value that as a top 10, top 15 pick. Some teams, that's not a rule in their offense. They don't really care. They won't even put a first round grade or wouldn't even touch that guy in the first round just because they don't need that in their offense. So, I do ultimately think he goes probably somewhere in the top 20 picks. Uh, I, I think he could go as high as the top 10 to 12. But again, it's it's really going to be a team-specific fit when you're talking about the tight end position. It's not like a pass rusher where every team in the NFL needs a pass rusher. You know, every, every team could draft one of the top 10. You really only have a few teams who are like, yeah, I, that's a tight end. That's a guy I need in my offense. Mike, uh, I'm curious, when you watch games, do you kind of, scan the roster for pro prospects i mean can you can you watch games like that or how do you process that and and where i'm getting to is when you watch notre dame versus clemson notre dame versus ohio state and when we watch notre dame versus usc how do the overall talent level compare i think they're on fairly equal footing you know from a pro prospect perspective now, now right. They might not have it at the same positions that may impact the game as much as some of those teams. Like they don't have a Caleb Williams, you know, when you're going up against USC, who's going to be probably a top five pick, not 2023, but 2024 because he's only a sophomore. But they don't have that guy at that position who's, you know, the true difference maker this season, I'd say. You know, when your best player is a tight end, again, that's not a position that routinely is the needle mover on an offense. You know, you'd rather have the quarterback. You'd rather have the elite edge rusher you'd rather have the elite wide receiver you know those positions impact every single play to some degree so but just from a pure total talent how many of those guys are going to the nfl that are starting right now i think notre dame's up there with a lot of the best programs in the country maybe only behind you know the true 
people who have been there in the playoffs year in, year out, the Georgias, the Alabamas. But there's not a lot of guys who are multi-year starters on this team that will not be playing in the NFL, which is – that's where you got to get as a as a, as a a you know program, right? That's what every – all the top programs – if you're starting for them, you're probably going to be a future NFL player. That's where Notre Dame has to get, and I think they're close to that right now. And then, and then just following up on that, I know that you're probably looking at the draft-eligible guys, but when you're watching Notre Dame – can you take your eyes off of guys like Joe Alton, Blake Fisher, who are not draft eligible? And what's your impression of those two? Yeah, that's the thing. It's watching Notre Dame's offense. I, I'm almost, it's almost tough because I'm just watching Joe Alton. Uh, he's unbelievable. He's blowing my mind with how good he is at his age. It's reminiscent of you know, Penny Sewell back when he was at Oregon. And his sophomore year was the last year we saw him actually at Oregon. And it was just, I don't know how a guy that young, is that good already? And it just makes you think, what what's he going to be uh, in the future? Because it, there's not really much that he's putting on tape that's, you know, negative. So you're watching a game and it's just, it's going up against a Miles Murphy, who's probably going to be a top 10 pick for Clemson a few weeks back and just shutting him out, it, you know, just a clean slate there. So yeah, Joe Walt's tough to, you know, not put your eyes on snap after snap. And I will say Blake Fisher, I watched him a lot. His growth from week one this season, Ohio State, week two, Marshall, where, man, he struggled so much against Marshall. And I was watching that tape back because I was just, you know, going back and actually reviewing the ultimate two for some of the prospects. And I'm like, ah, Blake Fisher, like I, he just, he looked better as a freshman in that one half against Florida State than he did this game against Marshall. And I'm like, what just happened? And obviously you're switching sides, but man, he has settled in. And I wouldn't put him – he's not close to how I feel about Alt right now. I think Alt's going to be a top five to ten pick when he does come out. But you see it. Like you see the ability that under Harry Heastan's tutelage, it's going to come at some point. He's going to be that guy, and he's really improved. Yeah, Alt's fascinating because, I mean, he was mostly a high school tight end, and there are lots of success stories of high school tight ends who became really good college offensive linemen and then end up being really, really good NFL linemen. I wonder if it's – worth like teams should maybe start taking high school tight ends and and making them into offensive linemen more frequently because it seems to be I mean obviously there's plenty that don't turn out too but it seems like there's a high ceiling for those kinds of guys oh yeah I, I joke and I'm not really even joke every year there's probably two or three tight ends who are you know fringe fifth sixth seventh rounders who can block where I'm like if they just ate you know fat and protein for you know five thousand calories every day for the next six months and put on muscle like because half of and not half of but a good portion of playing the tackle position is just can you move and can you use your hands to be able to stay in front of 240 pound guys that run four fours you know like can you do that because once you can your life is a lot easier than the guys who can't and so a lot of tight tight ends who maybe aren't even considered athletic for tight ends once they put on you know 30 40 pounds like joe walt and become, you know, a tackle, they're athletic for tackles. So, yeah, it's it's something that definitely from a recruiting perspective, you're going to want – if guys are tight ends, jumbo tight ends in, in high school that look like they can move, I'd be moving a lot of those guys off as tackle. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, you know, we look, talk about Foskey and we talk about Mayer, and then we kind of get into the next tier of Notre Dame prospects, and there's two guys – that really intrigued me. Jarrett Patterson, who changed positions, who's been playing with a sprained foot since August. Um, 
in pain has to you know wear a walking boot usually the day after games uh and then brandon joseph who transfers from northwestern hoping to become a first round caliber prospect or at least a high round draft choice how do you feel like their journeys this year are playing out yeah patterson really uh, playing through injury obviously it's something that you want to do as a player and that for, you know, to help the team, you feel good about doing, but from a pro prospects perspective, you're doing yourself no favor. It is not helping to play through injury and put on probably I'd say worse tape than what we saw last year, et cetera. Now, now it's good for his pro prospects to show he can play multiple positions and at his size. I always thought that was going to be the case that he could be guard center guard, uh, three position versatility on the interior, but you can tell that he is not 100% out there compared to what he put on tape last year. So I thought he was probably, you know, in the range of where Robert Hainsey went. So a late day two guy coming into this season. And obviously with the foot, that is going to, depending on how it heals and whatever, the medical test rechecks at the combine and whatnot. To assume a clean bill of health, I don't think he's going to, go any higher than that i don't think he's improved upon that just because it's difficult to when you're playing through injury so no team's going to look at his tape and say really go to bat for it obviously you go to bat for his toughness and whatnot and the player and the mentality but uh, i still think he's probably in that late day two to somewhere in the mid day three range and how about brandon joseph brandon uh, brandon joseph I, i'm a big fan of i've seen differing sort of opinions on him uh, a lot revolving kind of around him as a tackler and what like he can bring to the table. And is he just this, you know, the new wave of defenses in the NFL, they're taking safeties and making them more slot corners and making them more deep coverage players, not really caring about what they do in run defense. Um, and, and that was always the type of player he was at Northwestern. He was not your box safety. Let's get him in and mix it up at the line of scrimmage sort of guy. But I thought he's improved a lot as a tackler this year. He, he just looks much more confident coming into contact and what I saw at Northwestern, which was again, the biggest sort of worry with him. And I love his coverage abilities. I'm probably higher on him than most. I think I have him as a top 75 player on the PFF board. I just think that he is, has that natural playmaking ability, the uncoachable part of the safety position that reminds me of like a Micah Hyde where, you know, Micah Hyde coming out of Iowa and even with the Packers and the Bills, there's nothing you rave about physically with the guy. I think that's the same with like Joseph. There's no one trait that he can hang his hat on where it's, you know, his range isn't elite. His uh, sort of his burst isn't elite. His size isn't elite. He's just kind of a guy in that regard. But the way he plays the game is so, uh, so fast and, and so much faster than he's probably going to test. So I go to bat for the guy. I, I think he could be a second rounder, but the way the NFL is devaluing safety is the way kind of the position has been drafted wouldn't surprise me if he ends up on day three, but I, I feel pretty good that he's going to be somewhere in the day two conversation when it's all said and done. I wanted to circle back to Isaiah Foskey. What what did you want or feel like he needed to show this season and, and where has he maybe come up short in terms of maybe trying to raise his stock this year? So he's an elite athlete, right? He's been, I think, two-time Bruce Feldman freaks list guy. And you watch sort of his high-end reps and the power and explosiveness at his size. And you're like, damn, that, that could be, you know, that could be Marcus Davenport for the Saints. That could be this, uh, this, this pocket pusher, this bull rusher at the next level. That's just a sort of a snap in to snap out sort of problem. He's just going to, he's going to move the line, reset the line scrimmage of the run game. He's going to push the pocket against the pass. It's just guy who can be consistent because of that physical ability. But 
why has it not translated, you know, when you have that physical edge, why is it not really translated to collegiate tackles who you realistically should have a massive physical edge over it. And you really just don't see the consistency in his bull rush technique, uh, in his ability to sink into contact and really reset that makes you think once he gets to the NFL, that he's going to be able to do that against NFL because he's still in, you know, after four years and obviously Marcus Freeman's scheme, I wouldn't say is the most pass rusher friendly in terms of giving you opportunities to go one-on-one. It's not, he's not getting what, you know, the Ohio state guys get in terms of one-on-one and freedom to rush the passer. But even still, I still just still think he's just a little too hot and cold. And especially when you saw him against some better competition, uh, namely week one, Ohio state was obviously going to be the best tackle duo we faced all season. I just think he came up a little short of where I would have hoped if I'm drafting that guy. And it's just expectations, right? It's when it's, right. are you drafting that guy top 10 to 15 or are you drafting that guy 25 to 50? And I think he's probably fallen more towards the 25 to 50 range than the 10 to 15 after his play. Mike, who would be in, in then the next tier down from the Brandon Josephs and Jarrett Patterson's like, I'm thinking about the Adam Malola twins, Josh Lug, Tariq Bracey, who who intrigues you among the are those all draftable players? Uh, I, I think Cam Hart is probably the next one who intrigues me. Okay, because of size, length size. at the cornerback position. Yeah, it's like size, length, speed. That's a lot of that's cornerback play at the NFL level because you're going to you're going to be behind guys. It's like you're going to have to make up for it somehow, and. Size is the way to do it. Speed's the way to do it. And so if you have those things at that position, I think it gives you a leg up. So obviously I don't think he's been shut down by any means. I, I don't think he's had probably the year he wanted in terms of really raising his stock. But I do think that the NFL is always going to bet on those guys at some point in draft. You, you'd rather take that guy than the five foot nine, 180 pound corner who's playing maybe good football, but at the next level is just going to get sunned at the catch point every time. So yeah, I think he's at least put himself in the, He's going to get drafted where exactly probably somewhere early day three, I'd say at this point. It, um, in terms of the Adam Ola twins, is there, is it, is there a clear difference between who would be a better draft prospect whether Jason has a defensive tackle or Justin has a defensive end? I, I honestly keep having to, every time I like watch the defensive line, I keep having to look back and be like, okay, which one was that again? And that's, that's my fault for not being, you know, well, to uh, be fair, I've covered them in person for, for four, five years now. And Justin came into the post-game press conference after the game in Vegas. And I was like, that's not Jason. I was, I was, I thought they were playing a prank on us. And and I was like, wait a minute, which one is this? But it it was, uh, it was actually Justin. So you're not alone. So don't worry about it. No, but those two, I I just don't think when you're at that kind of size, which is kind of the same boat as, uh, gosh, who who was the last year? Tagovailoa Mosa last year, uh, where it's just you're not meeting kind of the trace threshold in terms of, you know, Jason's an undersized DT. uh, Justin's a a shorter defensive end. A lot of teams are going to shy away from that because of the developmental potential in, in their eyes when you don't have the length, when you don't have the size strength for your respective position, they're just going to be lower. So, you know, they performed well. Uh, obviously, I think they're both uh, having solid years for themselves, but I don't think it's going to get them onto draft radars just because of that, just because the NFL is still uh, traits-based uh, unless you're, you know, elite performer at the collegiate level, which I wouldn't put them in that category. 
So, so Justin has a year of eligibility left if he wanted to come back. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he will, but say if he did and then becomes the starting Viper and plays that role that Isaiah Bosky's been playing, could he do enough to get himself in position like that? Or is it just, will it still probably come back to those trades regardless? I think so. Um, I do think he has probably the athleticism to get there. And obviously then you're going to have to put something on tape. You're going to have to really perform to that level to get there. Uh, but, it, you know, never going to count a guy out who has that, you know, is in that conversation already. So this weekend, Boston College comes to town. Phil Dracovic comes back to Notre Dame Stadium as a glorified cheerleader because he's got concussion issues, knee issues, back issues. So he's not going to play. Um, I'm wondering, given, you know, the tough year he's had and he's he's on a team that's the worst running team in the country and one of the worst offensive lines, but what's your sense of where he would land if he came out this year? What's your sense of maybe if he needs to jump in the portal again and find a new home and maybe rebuild his reputation? What how do you feel like that dynamic will and should play out? I think he should come back to school. Truthfully, he's going to be fighting for a practice squad if he does that. I'd be hard-pressed to see him get drafted. And obviously, he is in a situation where not a lot of quarterbacks are going to succeed there. It's not, not a lot of talent around him at BC. But you still have to rise above it at some point. He really just obviously did not this year before, as you mentioned, the concussion issues. So – that would be if I were, you know, giving him advice. That's what I would say because I think we've seen the trend of what you see with Hendon Hooker this year, with Stetson Bennett this year, two guys who are going to get drafted a lot higher than they would have had they come out last year. Um, if they, if you know, Stetson Bennett probably wouldn't even gotten drafted had they come out last year. But they're 24 years old. You know, the NFL doesn't really care when you play well, quarterback. They just care if you play well. So if you know he comes back for. I think it'd be year six, right? Year six yeah. for him. And all of a sudden turns it on, lights it up. He'll get drafted. You know, he, he will go high then because he is talented physically. And he is six, five. And he does have a fairly big arm and, and is a plus athlete. So yeah, I, I, it's what I would recommend. But again, you're with what he's put on tape this year, he, he's not going to get drafted. I'd be hard pressed to see that. Mike sort of in that same vein, because Notre Dame, I think will be interested in looking at a grad transfer quarterback and you're a, evaluating some of these guys that are maybe borderline draft making decisions to go into the draft or deciding to stay. Are there guys that come to mind as people that Notre Dame should pursue as quarterbacks that you think would be worth pursuing as borderline draft guys that maybe come back to school for another year and decide to grad transfer to to Notre Dame to give it one more run? Yeah. The one guy I keep coming back to that I've, that I've I've had people tell me to tell him because I actually interviewed him (laughs) on our podcast and (laughs) I've had a few conversations with him. Is Tanner McKee, the Stanford quarterback. As okay. I've had uh, somebody, wow. anybody's like, dude, tell him to come to Notre Dame. And <laughs> he'll, if he goes out this year, he'll probably be, he'd probably be a top 50 pick, top 75 pick. He, he'd go like at worst where Davis Mills went um, because I think he's that caliber of a quarterback in terms of what he's shown from accuracy and just obviously physical talent. But Man, that Stanford offense, I mean, we were, I was at the Stanford-Notre Dame game. is hard to watch. That was a rough <laughs> game overall, obviously, because Notre Dame's side as well. But they do not do them any favors. They are not scheming guys open, and they do not have talent on the outside. I think I I pulled his – you know, we do quarterback charting here at PFF, and I pulled his uh, contested or tight window throws 10-plus yards down the field, rate of throws that are tight window. I think he was in the – 
five highest of all quarterbacks in the country in terms of how infrequently guys are open for him. It was twice a 10 yard throw for him was twice as likely to be into a tight window as Bryce Young, as CJ Stroud, as these other top wow. quarterbacks in the draft, where it's just like, he's playing a different game with how kind of dated that Stanford offense is. And, and so super physically talented, you know, former highly recruited guy, but Stanford, you know, under David Shaw is just not going to showcase quarterbacks in the modern college football landscape. They're just not doing the things that you need to do to scheme guys open. And so obviously Notre Dame's uh, going to be a little bit better than that. And obviously there's a little bit more coming back than probably Stanford does. So that's the one guy I'd keep going back to. I'm like, if he comes, if he wants to come back to school and he had said to me that like Stanford, he went there in the first place because the academics were so important to him. Right. That's the one guy I'd keep an eye on. Okay. My last question for you is kind of out of your lane. So if, if this is too far out of your comfort zone, let me know. But when you watch Tommy Reese as a play caller, as an offensive coordinator, as a quarterback's coach, do you feel like his future is more NFL-ish? Do you see him as a college head coach someday? Or do you feel like he's still got a lot to prove in either arena? So that's what I was kind of upset about early in the season was I thought Tommy Reese was almost trying to debut for an NFL offense coordinator position. Like I thought the offense he was running was not kind of taking advantage of what makes college football unique and how you can put out points in college football that you can't necessarily do at the NFL level. Like he was running pretty much all NFL concepts almost, you know, in the running game and with the two tight end stuff. And I was just like, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to kind of square peg around hole here with, you know, you, you kind of got to take advantage of some of the low-hanging fruit that the wide hash marks offer, that the differences in the college collegiate game offers. And, and the biggest thing that I will say is he has made improvements week on week. Like, you see him changing up his offense to do so. If it was still around the same stuff they were back, you know, Ohio State game, Marshall game, I'd try to call him for his head at this point. But you've seen the changes. So I've been very <laughs> impressed with that. I do think they are doing a lot of different stuff, especially with their shifts and motions and a lot more to simplify it for their quarterback when they knew the quarterback uh, was going to be a little bit of an issue heading into the season. So hats off to him. But I do still think, you know, going back to that, he's probably still gunning for an NFL OC job because that's what it looked like he was doing early on. So I think that's where he has his eyes if he does, if he is looking anywhere. All right, Mike. Well, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to join us. I know basically all year is draft season anymore, but you're going to be ramping up here for a pretty busy time of the year. So best of luck with all of that. For sure, fellas. Thanks so much for having me on. Go Irish. Where can people find your content and so forth? You can find me on Twitter at PFF underscore Mike. I'll have a draft guide out after the Senior Bowl, week after the Senior Bowl on PFF.com. And you can tune in. We do a show on YouTube weekly every day or excuse me daily monday through friday 11 a.m eastern it's called it's just football it's on the pff youtube channel uh, every wednesday is our draft day and so tomorrow i guess wednesday whenever it's coming up uh we will be doing uh draft talk mock drafts that sort of thing so uh make sure to check that out as well awesome. really appreciate it, mike for sure fellas thanks as a reminder the inside ND sports podcast is presented by dead soxy maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. And if you're like me, fighting the crowds, looking for deals on holiday gifts is something I try to avoid. What's the alternative? Check out what our friends at Dead Soxy have going this week. 
It's their pre-cyber 2022 sale. What does that mean? Buy more, save more. Here's how the math works. Any order using the promo code LUCKY, that's L-U-C-K-Y, LUCKY, is going to get you 25% off on your order. If you spend at least 50 bucks, you get free shipping with that. But you get 30% off any order of 120 bucks or more and 40% off any order of $240 or more. And all of that comes with free shipping. So make your holiday shopping fun and easy and even treat yourself. Uh, remember, all the, their socks come with a patented technology with a no-slip guarantee made from bamboo for that premium luxury feel. So head to deadsoxy.com, that's D-E-A-D-S-O-X-Y.com, and check out the Navy and Gold Collection. Click on the Collections tab, select Team Colorways from the drop-down menu, and then once you find out, find the socks that you like, use promo code LUCKY. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at Cubster11. 2023 quarterback recruit versus grad transfer. Is there a benefit to one over the other? And how does that affect wide receiver recruiting in the next two cycles? Well, can it be both? You know, I mean, I if I had to make a choice between the two, I would take the grad transfer over the 2023. But it looks like Notre Dame can have its cake and eat it too in this cycle. It looks like they're going to get Kenny Minchie um from Hendersonville Tennessee who was committed to Pitt and then there's going to be a pretty good array of grad transfer talent that could end up at Notre Dame and Mike Grenner just mentioned uh you know Tanner McKee from Stanford as somebody that might be a nice fit um as far as how would that either of those influence wide receiver recruiting well you've already got three top 250 receivers and a pretty good chance of adding another really good receiver in this class based on no 2023 receiver and no promise of a um of a grad transfer and i think that's based on marcus freeman's vision and tommy reese's to a certain extent vision of the future of the notre dame offense and being able to sell what that's going to look like and then having a commitment from cj carr I mean, CJ's been at a lot of these big recruiting weekends where he's been talking to recruits and so forth. I, I would imagine Cam Williams and CJ, there's a connection there already, and Cam's in the 2024 class. So I think that's going to influence recruits more. And, and again, the promise of what Notre Dame's offense is going to look like because what it looks like now is not a big selling point to wide receivers. If anything, I think it – makes it a tougher sell. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think 
well, I, to me, these are like the 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 issues that these are solving are different. Like a grad transfer quarterback is being brought in to, to play next season, whereas I never believed like once the Dante Moore boat <laughs> sailed away that that Notre Dame was getting a 2023 quarterback that would come in to compete for the starter next season. Um, and even that might be asking a lot for Dante Moore to come in and uh, be the 2023 starter. So, well, given at, what what's asked of the quarterback here in this offense, you know, making those adjustments of the line of scrimmage and that kind of stuff. Yeah, although I think they've taken that off the plate with the scan offense. That was the whole idea of it. Um, even though maybe people don't agree with it, uh, but I, I think uh, I think it's actually probably helped more than it's hurt. Even though people. Or have sort of glommed onto it just because it has a name for it. I think sometimes when things get a name uh, and they're and it's mentioned on a broadcast, then they have something to point at and blame. Um, so, uh, but anyways, that's a that's a tangent for another day. Um, I think the twenty twenty three quarterback and twenty twenty four quarterback recruiting will probably have a bigger impact on wide receiver recruiting because I mean, if you look at what Notre Dame's wide receiver recruiting now, it's it's already going well. And they don't they don't have a lot to like look at in terms of on the field in terms of this is what you could be at Notre Dame um, this is what the offense looks like in in terms of being a high flying offense so I do think a grad transfer that plays well next season could help that but obviously that 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 quarterback's not going to be playing with those recruits in the future anyway so but I do think it would be helpful to sort of see that and see Chancey Stuckey turn some guys into um, playmakers with the help of a good quarterback um, throwing the ball to them. All right. Uh, we, we received a number of similar questions this week. So I combined two from Enforcers, Enforcers 2117 and at Mike Devoy one. If Notre Dame gets a commitment from Kenny Minchie, um, who Eric mentioned previously, do they still go after a transfer who can compete for the starting job? Absolutely. Um, because Kenny Minchie isn't going to be in the mix to start in 2023. Notre Dame needs to create either bring somebody that is going to be the starter or is so good it lifts Tyler Buckner up to another level I mean that's really the scenarios I don't think Drew Pine is realistic um, option in the 2023 picture but he's proven people wrong before but I really think you're either going to have a grad transfer starting in 2023 or Tyler Buckner playing at such a high level uh, that he beats that person out. Yeah, I, to me, the 2023 quarterback doesn't change the, the math. Uh, the and, and who the grad transfer would impact would be Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner, and it's not necessarily impacting Steve Angeli or Kenny Minchie or C.J. Carr. So um, I still think that should be on Notre Dame. Or Ron Paulus. Or Ron Paulus III, um, because uh, I, I do think Notre Dame should try to get as much competition in that quarterback room in terms of, someone who could start next season. Uh, Mike from at KYND fan asked chances of ND landing Kenny Minchie, which Eric already sort of indicated what he thought about that. Well, I I think that our recruiting guy, Kyle Kelly has put in a future cast for that. I That's the anticipation that it's a very, very good chance. I mean, he would not have decommitted from Pitt if he didn't have, Notre Dame in his sights and so I do think that that will happen sooner than later yeah it seems like there's pretty good chances that's how it ends up I I would still say like 
given the way quarterback recruiting has played out this cycle, <laughs> I have to see them cross the finish line to feel a hundred percent confident in that. Uh, but uh, I guess to sort of categorize it, I would say that Notre Dame has a better chance with Kenny Minchie now than it's had with any of the quarterbacks it's been recruiting <laughs> since, since Dante Moore. It's, it's going to be 29 degrees at Notre Dame stadium on Saturday, but it's going to be 29 in Pittsburgh too. So um, he's not going to go, Oh my gosh, it's cold weather. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to worry about the, the weather concerns there because he was already committed to a, a cold weather school. All right. Uh, next question is from at Henry bead. There's a chance that Notre Dame gets a transfer quarterback commitment before ND plays its bowl game. Do you think that would affect Drew Pine's decision whether to play in the bowl game, or do you think Pine will stick around through spring practice and fight to be QB one? Um, I'm not sure why he would drop out of a bowl game uh, because a grad transfer was committed. I don't know that that does him any good. Um, it's not like he's preserving himself for the pros. Um, and if he were going to transfer himself, he would have plenty of time to do that in the couple of weeks that follow the bowl game. So I don't see him dropping out because of that. Do I think, I think these are kind of two separate questions. Do you think he would stay uh, for the spring semester and right. battle it out? Yeah, I do. I think uh, unless the coaching staff specifically told him that you don't have a chance to win this, then I think he goes away. And Charlie Weiss did that one year. He did it one summer with Zach Frazier. They had a four-way, they had a four-way knockout in the spring for the starting quarterback. And then afterwards, Zach Frazier wanted to stay and com continue to compete. And Charlie told him to transfer. So he ended up ended going to UConn and then coming back and beating Notre Dame. Which was is he kind of interesting. What, what what class was he? What or what grade was he when that happened? Was he a senior? I believe he was. Um, he had gone through his freshman year, so maybe freshman to sophomore. Oh, so he was young. Okay. Yeah, he was young. It was Demetrius Jones and Evan Sharpley and Jimmy Clausen. So I think he was in the class right before Clausen. Clausen was a early enrolled freshman who had an elbow injury. So um, you know, Charlie was like, "See ya," um, <laughs> but. I don't think the Notre Dame staff would do that. I mean, they could be honest with him and say, Hey, look, you're going to be the third, third option probably here. But uh, I mean, Drew Pine is a fighter. I mean, he's, he's been told he's not good enough all his life. So uh, I don't think that would deter him now after spring. If, if he ends up the third option, then I think, you know, he would have to give some thought. And I think he's pretty far ahead in his classwork. He would want to leave with that Notre Dame degree. Uh, I don't see him wanting to transfer before he had that in hand. Um, I would say the doubters came to Pine later in the process than early. I mean, he got an offer as, eight, as an eighth grader from That's Alabama. True. So uh, I think uh, he was probably feeling pretty good about himself back then. Uh, That's but, true. But his, uh, his physical uh, maturation didn't necessarily continue in the same way in terms of being getting, getting the height that many quarterbacks want to get. Um, but – yeah, I mean, he but beyond that, he loves Notre Dame. Like he, he like this was his dream to come to Notre Dame and play football. Um and I would be surprised if he left Notre Dame before he graduated. Um I don't know how quickly he can do that. He's a junior. I think in theory if he's on track for that, maybe he can graduate in the summer. Um and that puts him in a position to to get his degree from Notre Dame and also transfer if that's what he wants to do. But I I I would be a bit surprised if he didn't stick it 
stick at Notre Dame through the spring um, because that would likely mean unless for some reason he's on pace to graduate in December that he would be leaving Notre Dame before he would graduate. And I, I don't know that he would do that because, uh, because you say even like he goes in the spring knowing that he probably wants to transfer, but wants to graduate first, he still would need, I, it still helps to be in practice and compete and, and maybe things go your way and, and you do um, prove yourself and, and continue to show improvement. So um, I think Notre Dame is, Drew Pine's first and second choice, in my opinion. So I don't know that he's he's going to be in a hurry to try to get out of here, and he he will he will fight to to try and hold on to the starting job that he has right now. And also circling back, I I think it would be a bit. What are your thoughts like getting a transfer commitment before ND plays in a bowl game? Do you think that would be likely? I I don't think it's likely. I think they m- might start talking to people and then. Sure. Yeah, I mean, because there's going to be a few guys. Let's say it was Tanner McKee. Stanford's not playing in a bowl game, so he may right. start taking some visits in December. Yeah, well, and he he would also be in the process of deciding if he's going to the NFL or not, too. So he, he would need to probably make that decision sooner rather than right. later. Also, like, I mean, I think probably any transfer quarterback wants to get here for the spring to to compete to, to be the starter anyway. So it would be similar to Jack Cohn's situation. All right, next question is from at Soli Fenton. Well, uh, I think our last quarterback question, quarterback-related question uh, for the podcast today, um, at least in terms of re- the recruiting front. How different do you think Tommy Reese's offense is going to look with C.J. Carr slash Kenny Minchie at quarterback? Well, if it's still, you know, Tommy Reese's offense by then, Tommy Reese may not be here, but let's assume that he is. I mean, Tommy Reese will tailor the offense to what his personnel is and by the time one of those might be guys might be the starter they're trending very well with wide receivers you know this offense is not wide receiver friendly because there's not many wide receivers on it worth being friends with (laughs) yeah some of them aren't very good or or are very young and will be good but haven't reached that point yet so um I think Tommy envisions this offense as being something that will still have the staples of really good tight ends, really good offensive line play, really good running backs, but they can have the bells and whistles of the really good wide receivers. I think that's the direction that's heading and that's whether it's Tommy Reese or whoever his successor is. Yeah. Tommy Reese already does so many different things with the offense that I think it won't look different in its makeup. It would just look sort of like, different in what is it, it's successful doing like it would in theory if it can take more chances down the field in the passing game it would do that more frequently and the plays that are missed more often than not right now um, would be successful and then attempted more because they could be successful doing that so I do think he would tailor it around their strengths but I think he's shown the ability to run all kinds of different personnel groupings out there do a, a lot of different kinds of concepts um, which maybe doesn't necessarily help Notre Dame at all always. Um, but I think um, it, it, it excites Dan Orlovsky. It, it does excite Dan Orlovsky. He is a leader of the the Tommy Reese fan club. And uh, sometimes I think Dan Orlovsky um, is looking at through an NFL lens be, and expecting Notre Dame's quarterbacks to, to be playing and executing the offense as, as if they are NFL quarterbacks. And um, certainly uh, that's not really the case right now, but uh yeah, I mean, I, I just think it'll be 
it can be more dynamic potentially. I mean, that would, I mean, we're, we're, we're projecting that those guys actually turn out to be really good players. Um, so, so you never really know, but I think that would be, that would be the goal. Uh, next question is from Jeff Staley at J E Staley zero one. When it comes to criticism, why does Al Golden seem to get a pass compared to Tommy Reese? The defense has regressed this year and Golden had more talent to work with than Tommy did on the offense. Well, I don't know if he means criticism from fans or criticism from media or both. I would say, I would say Al Golden's got some criticism, but let me throw some numbers at you to show you maybe why it's harsher for Tommy Reese. One is Notre Dame right now is 78th in total offense. They're 26th nationally in total defense. So that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, they were 45th in total offense last year. The last time they were worse than 78th in total offense was 2007. That's when Notre Dame went three and nine. Charlie's third year, they were 119th uh, that year. Um, and in total defense, Notre Dame is actually better than they were last year. They're not better in scoring defense, but in total defense, they were 43rd. They're 26th this year. Um, and so I, I think there's some other factors too. You know, the defense is third scheme and third year, third coordinator and third three years. You know, the offense has been Tommy Reese's the last three years. Tommy has had a hand in developing and recruiting the players on offense. Al Golden really hasn't had that. So I think, you know, fairly or unfairly, Tommy Reese gets criticized in more ways. And then there's still people that remember Tommy as a player and and kind of hold that against him too. So I think, uh, you know, Al Golden was definitely the better player of those two although he played for Penn State uh yeah I don't I don't know that how many Notre Dame fans have a recollection of Al Golden's playing career but uh, <laughs> uh they certainly know plenty about Tommy Reese's and I do think that plays some of a role and they're just obviously they're more familiar with him I think anytime you're familiar with a coach for that long and you're not like winning national championships you're gonna get tired of a guy <laughs> um and uh maybe throw more blame his way than than it's deserved but like like you said Reese's offense has been worse than Golden's defense I don't think there's really any argument uh to be made on that front um I think I mean look at the two games that Notre Dame sort of needed to win to revive its season Syracuse and Clemson those those games were won because of the defense um it wasn't because of what, what the offense did yes that the offense ran the ball really well against Clemson but if Notre Dame's defense didn't play the way it it did Notre Dame could have lost that game. I mean, Notre Dame's defense scored seven points on its own um, and put put Notre Dame in position to score another one with a with an interception that was c- close to the end zone as well. So, and, and they also got a blocked punt for a touchdown. Right, and the defense also gave Notre Dame a chance to beat Ohio State. I mean, we forget that because it was so long ago, but like the reason that Notre Dame was in that game was because Notre Dame's defense played really well. I also think like if we're looking at the regression, there are some numbers that Notre Dame's defense has regressed um, in terms of yeah. passing efficiency defense um, and rushing defense. And like you mentioned, scoring defense, I would, I would attribute some of the scoring defense to Notre Dame's offense, not being as good yeah. and, and, and putting Notre Dame's defense in bad positions. Um, and Notre Dame's also played some pretty good quarterbacks this year. I think we may not think about that, but CJ Stroud and Drake may are probably both better than 
Desmond Ritter and Sam Howell were last year as the two best quarterbacks that Notre Dame played against last year. Um, so I think you have to sort of keep that in mind. And DJ Uyungle certainly didn't play well, but I still think he's a fairly good quarterback and probably better than he anyone was the else. Number one player in the country coming out. Now he hasn't been that guy in college, right? But he's still probably better than what I mean. You, I, the third best quarterback ever played that Notre Dame played last year is probably Tanner McKee, who they played again this year. Um, but then after that, I would say that DJ would be probably next in that pecking order, but um. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's why Tommy Reese is criticized more because they haven't produced as well yet. And and the talent that is on Notre Dame's offense, Tommy Reese takes some of the blame for that because he was here to recruit those te- those players, whereas Al Golden was just given the players that he was given. So if there's deficiencies in terms of the personnel, Al Golden's not and going fit. to – And fit. Al Golden – I mean, that's not necessarily Al Golden's fault. Now, obviously, the idea is that he coaches – coaches those guys up and coaches around them to put them in the best position. Um, but I think, I think all those things sort of combine to why Tommy Reese gets more um, of the blame than Al Golden does. All right. Next question. Speaking of Al Golden is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. And I feel like we've, we've talked about this question before. I, I wanted to see if this is something similar had been sent to us. Uh, how would you grade Al Golden's adjustment to the college game? Does his play calling put his players in the best positions to be successful? Moving forward, do you see Freeman being more involved with the defense or possibly analysts hired in the offseason to help? Well, Marie is um, – I would have thought if I didn't know better, I know what Marie does for a living, and and it's amazing, but I thought I would have thought she was a teacher because she does ask us for grades a lot. Um, <laughs> but um, – I would give Al Golden a B, um, and I th- base that on improvement. You know, I think the Marshall game was his worst game. Marshall's turned out to be a really good defensive team and a really bad offensive team. They can run the ball. They can't throw the ball. They can't protect. Um, and Notre Dame didn't take a- advantage of that in the Marshall game. So th- they should have never gotten to 26 points. Um, but the Syracuse game, the Clemson game were really good. I think there were some mitigating circumstances in the Navy game, including some injuries that in, under different circumstances, that's a different game. Uh, so B for him, as far as analysts and, uh, you know, adding analysts and Marcus Freeman being more involved, let's take the analysts first. You know, what they're going to be able to do is provide data to help him make decisions and to help him uh do better and marcus freeman when i asked him about adding analysts to either side of the ball he seemed to be very open to having a larger staff of that if if that's something that's going to make them better i almost think marie you're implying marcus's involvement is needed to help al golden i don't know that that's necessarily the case i do think that Marcus will probably reevaluate after the season how he wants to spend his time during the week, during the falls, and how much, you know, where he spends his time on game day decisions and game day thoughts and so forth. Um, I don't know that he's going to move off too far from where he is right now. He wants to be heavily involved in special teams. He wants to continue to learn about the offense to be a better head coach. So I think he hired a defensive coordinator that he trusts 
and and that's going to get the job done. And I think Al Golden, if he's on the staff next year, will be a better defensive coordinator. Just another year back in the college game. He, you know, when I, I transcribe him and I interview him every Tuesday, uh, I transcribe him for a group of media members, and I do ask him a lot of questions. And he is a guy that that admits his mistakes. He You don't have to pry it out of him. And he seems to learn from them. I don't see a lot of repeat mistakes. So uh, that's kind of my take on Al Golden with his B and no note, no detention, no note home to mom. Yeah, I think a B is fair. Um, he's had some regrettable play calls, like individual play calls, usually uh, safety blitz related. Uh, but the I, I, like a, sort of like we talked about on the last question the the pressure on the defense has been pretty immense because the offense was so bad at times and um so i i don't put a huge blame on al golden i think there's certainly some things that he could he needed to figure out and get a sense for in terms of how he could call the defense what he could rely on Notre Dame's defensive players to be able to handle um and who he could put in those right positions um and so i i think that there's certainly a learning curve there for any first year coach at a new school. I mean, we saw Marcus Freeman struggle with Notre Dame's defense a little bit to start the season last year um, and, and sort of got things course corrected as well. So um, I, I think Marcus Freeman is probably pretty involved with the defense. I don't think he's like really hands off. I, I mean, from my perspective, anytime we ask him about something, even like post game about the defense, he can give you a pretty detailed response about what happened or why it happened Whereas the offense, I think he needs to go back and review and talk to Tommy about it and get a little bit more insight. Um, so I, I think, I think he's pretty involved. So I don't, I don't know that he would be getting more involved than he is already. Um, and the analyst thing, I mean, they're always going to hire analysts that um, can help the team. I, I don't, I, I get the sense that there may be some budget constraints there in terms of what Notre Dame has been allowed to do in terms of hiring um support staff guys um that seemed to that i sort of got the sense for that um when tommy Reese certainly was during about, the pandemic there was right and i think they've been trying to push that way but when tommy Reese said hey we have an offensive analyst opening i don't think it's because they can't get someone to do that i think they're probably trying to get someone that maybe wanted more pay than they were allowed to pay that person or something like that so i think that there may be some barriers there tyler will do it that they're trying to work out. No, I will not. I will. That's a, a, a little bit more cutthroat than, I, than I'm looking for. Um, and I know what the support staff people do because my, my youngest brother is a, a graduate assistant at Northern Illinois and has been a graduate assistant um, at a division two uh, program as well. So he, he knows, uh, uh, I, I know the hours that he puts into that and it, uh, those are long and they're not well paid either. So, um, but uh I, I think that so all those things will be considered in the in the offseason in terms of trying to get more analysts. But it won't, I don't think it'll be like a response to how Al Golden's defense played this year. I don't know that that would be the reason that Notre Dame would be doing that. All right. Next question is from RRH1 on the Insider Lounge. Do you expect more young players to see time in the last two games? I would say a trickle, maybe. Um, I asked Marcus Freeman about that on Monday and he's certainly open to it. You know, Brian Kelly did the whole red shirt thing differently. He would kind of plot out specific games. He wanted to play freshmen to get them to the four game threshold. 
and it wasn't sequential. It wasn't, let's wait till we get to game 10 and then start playing them. It was, let's play them game three, game six, you know, whatever. There were maybe some uh, special teams opportunities against elite opponents that he wanted to get better athletes on the field. Uh, but Marcus seems more, hey, it's week 10. Now we can open the gates and, and play some of these guys. About half of the freshmen haven't played at all. Um, Jalen Sneed and Jabron uh, Payne joined the group last week. I think you'll see more of them. You know, the Boston College game, if it got to be really blowout territory, and who knows if that's going to happen, you might see some guys that hadn't played, um, even some sophomores like maybe Chance Tucker or some of the corners, you know, sophomore corners that got leapfrogged on the depth chart. Maybe they get into a game, but I don't I don't think it's going to be a flood of young guys in, in the end of the season here. And certainly not at USC. No, and, and especially since it's senior day. I mean, there could I mean, if there are opportunities like that, maybe they turn to a walk on senior just to get him a couple yeah. reps. Like if it's if it's that if we're at the point of the game where it does not matter at all and they're just getting guys in there to have them some get some experience of playing at Notre Dame Stadium, they would probably opt to the the walking guys. Now obviously there may be a combination. It depends on the position in terms of what sort of seniors senior walk-ons are at the the positions where you have some freshmen that haven't played yet but Marcus Freeman didn't really offer any other names in terms of guys that haven't played yet that he thought were going to be able to make an impact throughout the end of the season that so it would so in terms of more guys it would probably only be in that circumstance where we're talking like third string players getting into the game um to get some to get some reps but um, so I don't know that I would expect to see more of those guys. Now maybe we see some more of the younger players who have continued to improve and earned more of those those roles. Um, whether you talk about Prince Collie or someone like that, but um, and obviously like Tobias Merriweather, who has been playing quite a bit until he was sidelined with a concussion um, for the Navy game. So I, I don't I don't expect a big influx of of young players in the next two games, especially of guys that we haven't already seen. Next question is from at Do Carroll one. Are you expecting a good atmosphere in the stadium for Senior Day, or is it an all, or is it all an emotional distraction likely to lead to a slow start? Okay, so I think those are two separate questions. If good atmosphere for Senior Day, uh, well, I mean people will be shivering, so they'll probably be moving around because it's going to be pretty cold. Um, yeah, I, I mean I, I think you know, it's the last chance to see this team at Notre Dame stadium. So I think it'll be a decent atmosphere. Now, will the senior day thing become a distraction? I mean, we've seen that. We've also seen them come out, you know, like gangbusters too. Um, the fact that it's maybe a smaller production with 25 guys versus 45 or 50, um, might make it, uh, less of a, less of a distraction, but, um, I don't know that this team gets just dis distracted at this point. The other thing is that some of these senior games, they've been such heavy favorites and there's been kind of pressure to, to put away a team like that. And they will be heavy favorites in this game. But I mean, whether Notre Dame goes nine and three or eight and four at this point, isn't a huge difference in what's going to happen to them in the postseason. So I don't know. I'd, 
I don't have a good answer for you. I, <laughs> I wish I did. I'm just going to have to say claim word salad and pass us. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't know how anyone can claim to know how Notre Dame is going to respond to anything this season based on how the season is yeah. going. Uh, how the heck are we supposed to know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, I would imagine um, that, I, I don't know, maybe the way the season has gone, that the emotions are tamped down. Like, I, I it's always still going to be, like, sad or – um it's gonna be um something you're trying to soak in when it's the last time you play in Notre Dame Stadium but like I don't know if the senses will be as heightened because the season has been so weird or maybe maybe it's more I don't know I mean I, I think it's and it, also I think it's it's unfair you're giving a word salad too it's unfair to say that every person's gonna react the same way everyone is gonna have their own perspective for it so I don't I, I we don't know that how Jason Adam responds to it will be the same way Isaiah Foskey responds to it. Um, so I think there's no way to, to there's no way to know um, in terms of the atmosphere. I would imagine it's muted because of the cold weather. Usually when it gets colder, the the atmosphere is muted. I don't know that people are um, chomping at the bit to go out there and boo Boston college necessarily. Um, so uh, and Phil Dracovic, if he's not playing, uh, there would be less opportunities to boo him too. Um, not that necessarily Notre Dame fans would do that, but maybe they would. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going into Saturday's game saying, man, I can't wait to see what kind of atmosphere is going to be at the stadium. That's not something I would necessarily expect from a midday game against Boston college in mid November. All right. Next question is, do you feel, or at, from at Charles W. Wolf, do you feel Notre Dame's offense has an identity or are we just going to have to take one take things one half at a time? Well, <laughs> I like my choices there. Yeah, I I do think they have an identity, and I think that yeah, we will have to take it one half at a time. I mean, again, there's been so many surprises this year, but I mean, they didn't change their identity. They just didn't play well in the second half and didn't. Uh, maybe coach well in the second half. I will, I will definitely say that, but I mean, their identity has become a team that's got a lot of physicality on offense leans into their um, offensive line who somehow didn't make the Joe Moore award semifinalist list today um, uh, has the best tight end in football has really good running backs and doesn't have a great downfield passing game. Uh, what Navy kind of forced them to do is to lean into things that they haven't done, which is the downfield passing game. I mean, there were a lot of favorable matchups there, and Drew Pine took advantage, Tommy Reese took advantage, Braden Lindsey took advantage in the first half. In the second half, they didn't do that. So their identity didn't change. Their competency changed from one half to the next. Yeah, I wasn't terribly surprised that Notre Dame didn't make the semifinalist list for the Joe Moore Award because the the bad games uh, started kept mounting, uh, and especially this past one, the Navy game. Like it wasn't a good game for Notre Dame's offensive line. Sixty six rushing yards against Navy, even though yeah. Navy's rushing defense is is good, um, that's still not a, a performance worthy of of the Joe Moore Award. Um, and when you rush for 76 yards against Ohio State, 130 against Marshall, and 150 against Stanford, those aren't performances that 
make you say, hey, if we're gonna, we have to make a decision between a ninth team and a tenth team on our semifinalist list, that that's not going to push Notre Dame ahead of someone else. So, um, but its its identity still is it wants to run the football and throw the ball to Michael Mayer. That's that's the identity of the offense. That doesn't mean it's always going to work, but that's that's what the identity is. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. How does Notre Dame run rough shot over Clemson's D? Wasn't it top five in rush defense before the ND game, which is loaded with four and five stars, yet gets totally stonewalled by Navy? I realize Navy has a good rush D, but that, but is it that much better than Clemson's? Tell me there's an easy answer. Yeah, there's an easy answer, I think. Um, you know, Clemson is a – their run defense is their signature – on that defense, but they are pretty competent in the pass game as well. Um, Navy is polar opposites. I believe this week they're sixth out of 131 and run defense, 129 out of 131 and pass efficiency defense. Pass efficiency defense is the defining uh, measure of how to determine a pass defense. That doesn't, you know, if somebody doesn't pass, very often against your defense, but you give up a lot of yards and touchdowns, it's reflected in that number. So they're the sixth best best run defense, the third worst pass defense in the country. And they invite you to beat them with the pass. And even Air Force, the number one rushing team in the nation, said, okay, we've got to throw some against Navy. And they threw for 156 yards against Navy in a in a win over Navy. Um, Notre Dame in the first half took that path. And in the second half, I think they said, well, let's, let's run the ball and put away the game like we did against Clemson. And Navy was just bound and determined to scheme up so that that was going to be very difficult to do. And subsequently that's what happened. So, um, had Notre Dame taken the, you know, they wouldn't have been able to bleed the clock as much with the pass passing game but you know maybe you go to the short passing game a little bit more of a possession receiving type but but that's just the way navy plays they are going to force you to to play whether that's your strength or not there's teams that were really good passing teams that have played navy that say sure we'll take that go ahead and and uh play nine guys in the box against our run we're we're okay with that yeah and and i think well, one, I don't know that Notre Dame's fully committed to trying to run the football in the second half. Um, and it didn't have success when it tried to run the football. And I think part of that is because there really wasn't a running game rhythm that was established in the first half because they were having so much success passing the football. Um, and usually when you have success passing, like a, a team's going to respond by being less aggressive and, and maybe try to t- defend the pass, but Navy didn't do that. Navy's answer was like, no, we're still coming at you. We don't care that you were able to throw it past us uh, for four passing touchdowns in the first half. We're still going to keep th- coming at you um, and we're going to keep crowding the box and we're going to cha- challenge Drew Pine to do that for an entire game. And, and um, even their run blitzes were great. You know, I mean, it wasn't just about sacking. They were getting in and all the running lanes. It's like, where are you going to run? Right. Yeah. And, and so, I think that makes it like once, once because they're throwing so many different things at you, Notre Dame hasn't sort of figured found answers for that with any sort of consistency in the first half, it's harder to sort of just come out in the second half and, 
expect that to sort of be working with the Clemson game. I mean, Notre Dame was running the entire game. Like that was, it wasn't like Notre Dame changed up its game plan in the second half. It, it, it just kept with it and was able to figure out what it needed to do and find that success there. And that, that just never really happened against Navy. So I think it's, it's harder to do that when you're sort of switching modes. And I also, like I said at the start, I don't think Notre Dame ever really fully committed to trying to pound the football against Navy. I mean, it tried to pass on first down and then it would fail and then would run on second and, and, and third down and second and third down along. And that's just that, that uh, Navy didn't back off. They kept, they kept guys in the box in there. So there weren't easy running opportunities for, for Notre Dame to take, take advantage of. I think, I think generally, and I, this is something I wanted to ask Marcus Freeman of, but I, ask of Marcus Freeman but I didn't because I thought that he maybe wouldn't answer it because he didn't want to like disrespect Clemson but I just think Navy sort of played more desperately than Clemson like just to sort of like that in the second half Navy was bound and determined to get back in that game they were going to do whatever they had to do physically schematically to try and get into that game and I'm not sure that that we saw that same kind of fight out of Clemson's defense all right next question is from Irish Hawk at Leroy K25 how does Drew Pine look so good making throws we've been begging him to make in the first half to WTF was that in the second half? In the second half, between the offensive line, Michael Mayer, Tommy Reese, and Drew Pine, they didn't have it together in the passing game. They weren't able to work against Navy's pressure. And Navy got five sacks. Um you know, if there weren't hot reads on certain routes, there should have been given the defenses that they were seeing. And when there were, um, you know, some check downs or maybe Drew could have gotten it quickly to the outside and let a receiver run a little bit. He needed to do that instead of holding onto the ball and looking downfield. So there was a lot of blame to go around with that. And that I'll just leave it there. Yeah, I, I think his pass protection failed him. I think some of the, the play calling failed him. Um, he failed himself. He missed a big throw to Michael Mayer, which um, Drew Pine does from time to time. And so he sort of regressed to the mean a little bit when he was like so on point in that first half. Like it, it was only natural that he was going to miss something. Like he wasn't going to be he wasn't going to be Joe Montana for an entire game. <laughs> like he was gonna he was gonna come back to earth. Um, and miss miss a play there and even on that play he did get pressured from his right and I, I don't think he was able to sort of step into the throw in the way that he maybe wanted or needed to to be as accurate as he could have been um, the batted pass that was intercepted he made the right decision there um, he just got outplayed the 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 cornerback who was blitzing um, figured out what he was doing and knocked the knocked the pass down um, or knocked it up technically um, there were a couple RPO what I believe to be RPO play calls that he should have thrown the ball rather than handoff. I believe it was Notre Dame's second drive of the uh, second half um, on first and second down. Like he, if you just sort of look, there's guys that run routes that would have been open for easy five, six yards minimum um, that he just decided to hand the ball off. At least if I'm understanding what I believe the play call correctly, like it's you can't, you, you never know for sure if, it, if it's an RPO or, or if it's a call to run um, and the wide receivers are just running routes. So it looks that way, but um, it seems to me that those the, that was that was there for Notre Dame's offense, um, and uh, I thought Navy sort of out schemed Notre Dame and made it difficult on Drew Pine, and he didn't raise his game um, to the level that it needed to be in the second half. But I, I think a number of his teammates were in the same boat and, and didn't do that as well. 
All right. Uh, last question we have is from SJB75 on the Insider Lounge. Do you or Eric believe that Notre Dame will consider in the near future having a more liberal policy allowing Marcus Freeman to recruit and sign undergraduate transfer portal transfers? They're working on it. I don't know that they're going to be able to find a compromise. You know, the dynamic that you're playing with there is that Notre Dame is looking at guys that are good students, but Notre Dame's transfer credit policy is so restrictive, it makes it difficult for that uh, to that player to have enough transfer credits. Even somebody like Brandon Joseph, who's an upperclassman, Coming from Northwestern, it was really difficult. I mean, given Northwestern's high standards, you know, Notre Dame, ah, that's not good enough. So if there's compromise, it's going to be if the student is really good to maybe compromise on the transfer credits and say, okay, we're going to accept these classes as something that can work towards your Notre Dame degree. That's going to be a hard pill to swallow for some deans at Notre Dame. Um, but again, if it's somebody that's an elite student or at least a very good student, you know, maybe there's some wiggle room there. So that's kind of where those conversations are, but there's not been movement at this point. Yeah. I think it would be if, if, and when there is, I think it'll probably be more gradual. I don't think it's just going to be like all of a sudden they're just going to like open the floodgates. I think they'll sort of pick and choose how they want to do it and use use cases as examples to see if it's successful. Um, we've seen some of women ba- women's basketball players transfer as undergraduates, um, and things seem to be have gone fine with that. Brandon Joseph is sort of the um, been the recent I- example for the, the football program, and um, it's not just like a football program-specific thing, but it is probably going to impact the football program more than any other program, although you can make the argument that basketball – could be in a similar boat, but there's just so many more players in football that, um, and as the transfer part portal market grows and Notre Dame is sort of locked out of, of so many of those options, it could be a competitive disadvantage for the football program. So Marcus Freeman's going to have to figure out how to push for that, why he, why he feels it's necessary um, and see if they can make some changes there that the gold won't start peeling off the dome if they start allowing mm-hmm. some more undergraduate transfers. All right, that's it for today's episode of in, the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your favorite draft analyst, as long as it's not named Mike Renner, because we, he, he is already aware of our podcast as our guest to, on today's show. Uh, check us out on YouTube if you're not subscribed to us there already. The Inside Indie Sports channel is home to our Monday night live show and our place your bets predictions for every week. And we will be back with another podcast next week to recap the Boston college game and get ready for the regular season finale at USC until then stick with inside for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs. 